good to see everyone that's here tonight. I hope that you've had a good day thus far and uh, are ready to study God's Word together. Tonight we will continue our study on the subject of the qualifications of elders, and uh, this will be our final lesson on this subject. Uh, you may be glad to hear that, I don't know, but uh, I think it's very interesting myself. And uh, one reason I believe that it's so important and so timely for us at this time, as you know, without having an eldership, uh, we know that the congregation is now lacking, as Paul would say. And so we need an eldership, but we must have men that are qualified. If you don't have men that are qualified, then you'll just go forward without, uh, without an eldership because you cannot put unqualified men in that office. And so we have been looking at the qualifications that are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verses 1 through 7, and we'll look at some from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. But it's so important that we study this subject because I believe there are men in this congregation that are either qualified or almost qualified. And so you men, as we've been going over these qualifications, hopefully you have been examining yourselves to see if you stack up with God's Word on these qualifications. And it may be the case that you meet almost every qualification, but there may be an area or two where you are a little weak. And it may just be a matter of you need more time to grow to that point where you would be qualified. But whatever the case may be, hopefully you have examined yourself and will, as we continue to study these qualifications, that you will, number one, desire the office of a bishop because it is indeed a good work. It's the greatest work. It's the highest office in the land that you could ever hold. And so hopefully you will desire it. And then as you have examined yourself, as we have been going through these qualifications, you know where you may fall a little bit short or maybe a lot short. You can work in those areas and grow in those areas so that one day you'll be able to be appointed an elder of this congregation or if perhaps you're in another area, uh, the congregation wherever you may be. So tonight we want to continue where we left off. And so we'll go to First Peter, First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. And if any of you want to discuss these qualifications further uh, after we're dismissed or at any time, I'll be glad to study with you and uh, maybe explain more or give you more examples and more scripture uh, why I have taught it the way that I have. And perhaps you can teach me some things on it as well that I have failed to mention, but I've tried to bring up a lot of different scenarios and questions that are asked and things that have happened. I will tell you this. In my years of being in the Lord's church, I have found that the churches have been more troubled usually when two things are happening. It has to either do with the hiring and firing of the preacher or the appointing of elders. And so that's where people can easily get sideways and cause division and contention within a congregation. And so I almost want to just put my hand on my eyes when these times start to uh, come and say, oh no, I just dread this happening. But uh, with the right spirit, the right attitude, uh, you can get through all of that, but uh, there's a lot of opinions, and a lot of people have their desires and wants and likes and dislikes, and so uh, these can be very challenging times, but nonetheless, we need 
good preachers in the pulpit that are sound and solid and stay with the Word of God, and we need men that are qualified to lead us in an eldership the way God would have us to go. And so, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul wrote, Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Novice, that word comes from a Greek word that means newly planted. Strong says a new convert. I remember when Aletha and I were dating. That was many moons ago. And we had a little game that we played on the TV together. And it was like a tennis. And, but it just had two little bars. And you remember the little ball that would go beep, beep, and you hit it back and forth? Well, when she'd ask me, to, you know, what did I want her to set it on, I would always say novice because it would be bigger bars, the ball would go slower, and it'd be a lot easier, or whatever you want to call that thing, to hit it back and forth. So I know what a novice is. I didn't want an expert. I didn't want something that was more difficult. I wanted what was easy. So, so a novice is a, is a new Christian, a new convert, someone that's not been in the church very long, someone that would not have a lot of experience, or for that matter, even a great Bible knowledge. And so you wouldn't want someone like that. To push the new convert too quickly into positions of leadership tends to give him exaggerated ideas of his importance and leads to vanity and pride. That's what Mr. Roberts says in his commentary. And so you can imagine when he talks about falling into condemnation of the devil, uh, that could blow a uh, new convert's head up, so to speak. He would perhaps think that he was more than what he really was, and then he'd be easy prey for the devil. And so he could be lifted up in pride. So it's really, this office is more for, uh, you could say, a seasoned Christian, uh, a veteran of the faith, someone that had, had stood and studied and learned and grown and was very mature in the faith. And so you wouldn't want to put a novice in there. It's easy for us to see these new converts. As a general rule, they grow very rapidly at first. And you see their growth just spike because they're zealous. They're learning things that are new. To you, they're just basics and first principles. But to them, they've never seen anything like that. So they're just eating it up. They can't get enough. And so because they're eating so quickly and so often and so much, they grow rapidly, but eventually they start to plane off, right? Once they know so much of the basics and first principles. Then you get to a point where you really need to be a Bible class teacher if you really want to grow further, because then you have to study for yourself, and you're not just being fed like a little bird all the time. You have to dig and research. So, so that's how you really get more growth, more knowledge. And so you would want someone like that, not a new Christian uh, he would not be qualified. Now, verse 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says, Moreover, he must be, he must have a good report, the American Standard says, testimony, of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and snare the devil. There again, you have the devil come into the picture. So you've got to be careful, because actually by putting the wrong man in office, you can do him more harm than good. So a bishop must have a good report of them that are without. 
he is to have a good and respectable reputation among those that are not Christians. I've, unfortunately, I can say that I've known of elders who were not thought very well of outside the church. But because of who they were, maybe they're the family that they were a part of, or perhaps uh, their financial status, things like that, they were placed in office, in the office of an elder. But yet, when you talk to people in the community, they didn't think well of that person at all. Well, that's unfortunate. You don't want to put someone in the office that does not have a good reputation. Brother Winton says in his commentary, if a man is considered to be a poor worker on the job, or if his honesty is suspect in the business world, he would make an equally poor leader of the church. His influence in the community would be weak at best and most likely negative. His influence on the church would likewise be negative or ineffectual. An elder's life is to be an example of the flock. Now, I've known other elders that when you talked about them and asked about them in the community, they were held at the highest regard because they always did that which was right above board. They were outstanding citizens of the community. They worked diligently on their jobs or they ran their businesses very fairly and they were equal to everyone without partiality doing things that were in harmony with the laws of man and with the law of God. That's the kind of man you want in the eldership. One that you can be proud to say when you're in the community, yes, do you know brother so-and-so? He's one of the bishops of the church where I attend. And you don't want to have to fear what they might say about that person and his reputation. And so he must be one that has a good report of those that are outside of the body of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that they will all like him because when he stands for the truth, there will be some that will turn sour against him. But it's not because he has not done that which is right and respectable and dishonest. And so, you remember Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. Because that's what they did to the false prophets. And so, everyone's not going to like you because you stand for the truth. But it had better not be because you have not done that which is right and fair and proper and pleasing in God's sight. Now, we're going to go to Titus to a few qualifications that are not found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're just going to put them all together both accounts so we can have the complete picture with all these qualifications so in titus chapter 1 verse 7 and some of these repeat for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of god not self-willed not soon angry not given to wine no striker not given to filthy lucre so one that we didn't have in first timothy chapter 3 was a bishop must not be self-willed, must not be self-willed. This term is from a Greek word which means self-pleasing. It denotes one who dominated by self-interest and inconsiderate of others arrogantly asserts his own will, and that's what Vine says, in volume 3, page 342. And so that's what it means to be self-willed. In other words, you are arrogant, have that 
you know, a lot of these things that we've talked about have to do with one's disposition, right? His attitude. That has a lot to do with everything. Attitude is key. Attitude is most important. If you're going to make it in this life, you've got to keep your attitude right. And so one that has this type of attitude, he's self-willed, he's all about himself, and he thinks what he says goes. You may hear someone say, well, it's my way or the highway. That's the idea. I'm going to get my way regardless. You don't want a man like that in the eldership because he's self-willed, he's thinking about himself, he's not considerate of others, and he will not be the right leader. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18, we find that's the kind of people these false teachers were. That's the kind of attitude they had. Where the Bible says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For, notice this, they are, for they that are such serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. That's what false teachers do. They serve their own bellies. They're not about the congregation. They're about themselves. How can they benefit? Have you seen people like that? That all they're about are, is serving themselves. It's about them. It's not really about anyone else. They're all for it if, if it benefits them. But if something does not benefit them directly, then most likely they're not going to be for it. Kaufman says in his commentary, this has to be one of the most important qualifications enumerated. Despite the fact of so little attention being paid to it, once a self-willed, opinionated elder is, self -appoint is uh, appointed, then his prejudices, his opinions, his judgments, and his vision become the automatic boundaries of the church's progress. There's your diatrophies again. He's going to have preeminence. He's going to have his way regardless. And so the church really begins to take the shape of this man and his ideas, his will, his opinions. And so if he wants to isolate you from the rest of the world, you become isolated. If uh, he wants you to mix and mingle with uh, very liberal congregations of the church and even denominational churches, then you go in that direction. It's all about what his opinions, what his will is, what his judgment is, instead of the eldership. He will dominate an eldership. And you can't have that. You can't have a head elder. And so you don't want that man in office in the first place, but if you ever get him in the office, you can't hardly get him out to save your life or to save the church. And so the best thing to do is don't put a man in there that's like this, that is self-willed. Also, a bishop must not be soon angry. Titus 1.7. The New King James says, not quick-tempered. I've known men in leadership positions in the past who were very quick-tempered. And when they would fly off the handle, so to speak, Sometimes they would come forward and say, if I have offended anyone. You wouldn't believe some of the things that I've seen. Probably you've seen some yourself, uh, especially in congregations where you don't have elderships and you have men controlling the church. You'll normally have one who will work his way to the top, so to speak, and it's his way or the highway. Well, that guy usually is very intimidating to say the least. 
because he gets angry very quickly. And you have to walk on eggshells around this person, and you have to run everything by him and make sure he's okay with everything or else he will explode. And he will do that very quickly. It doesn't take very long. You know, sometimes people just want to excuse it as, well, everybody knows I have a quick temper or I have a short fuse. Well, if you have a short fuse or quick temper, you don't belong in an eldership. But here's the thing. I believe that can be worked on. Just because you, you are soon to anger doesn't mean you have to stay that way. You need to work on yourself and learn not to be soon to anger like that, but to control that. We are taught really to control all of our emotions, and that was one that would definitely need to be controlled. James said in James 1, verse 19 and also 20, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. What's this? Slow to wrath. That's a command. You see, many of these qualifications apply to us as Christians, not just for elders, for us as Christians as well. And this is one. All Christians should be slow to anger, slow to wrath. And then he tells us why. For, here's the reason. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. When do you say things you ought not to say? More times than not, it's when you're very angry. When you're infuriated by something and you're, you're just... Uh, you're, you're just about to explode. You have all, uh, and so that's when you, when you say dirty words, perhaps use God's name in vain, uh, do things that are very ugly that you wouldn't ordinarily do, treat people in ways you wouldn't normally treat people during that time of anger. And so that's not the righteousness of God. That's doing what you want to do, not what God wants you to do. And so we all have to be careful of this, but if a man is soon to angry or anger, he needs to be, uh, he doesn't need to be in the eldership. Winton says about this particular qualification, Brother Winton, he says, a man who is easily irritated or provoked is super sensitive, is ill-tempered or wrathful, could not serve well in the eldership. And that's true. Elderships take a lot of heat from time to time. Sometimes from the members, believe it or not. And they are talked to in ways that no human being should be talked to and talked about. Now, shame on the ones that would do something like that, and I fear for their souls. But the truth is, during those difficult times, elders have to control their tempers. We don't like to be attacked, do we? As long as everybody's treating us well, well, everything's great, right? But when someone becomes negative against us and perhaps attacks us and tries to hurt us with their words, we become very defensive, don't we? And then we can charge back. I know I can. And so I have to be very careful because, you know, you feel yourself kind of heating up a little bit. And before you know it, you've already said something you wish you had not said or done something. And so you, you don't want an elder to have that problem because it would not work well in that position and the things that he will have to deal with. Titus chapter 1 verse 8. Paul writes, But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. 
So a bishop must be a lover of hospitality. We covered that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But here it says a bishop must be a lover of good men. A lover of good men. Okay, so according to Brother Winton, the text says good men, but the margin has good things. The American Standard renders it as lover of good, and the New King James has lover of what is good. It is God's will that every Christian be a lover of all people, not just those who are good, Matthew 5, 44 and 48. So really the idea is he is to be a lover of good, good things, things that are right, things that are just, things that are holy. He's to be a lover of good things. In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says to be ready to every good work. Be a part of it. Be ready to partake. If it's a good work, be a part of it. Don't you want to be a part of good things? Sure you do. In Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul said, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. And so it's not just about being lovers of good men, it's being lovers of good, good things. Whatever is good, men, people, things, he is to be a lover of good. And then a bishop must have his children in subjection. They must be in subjection. And uh, we've already covered that. So let me go to the next one. A bishop must be just. He must be just. So the elders dealing with men are to be fair and impartial. And so it's not about who the members are that you're having to deal with. It's not about if that member is kin. You know, where you have a lot of trouble in some congregations is when a large portion of the congregation is kin to one of the elders. I worked for a congregation at one time where there was about three families that made up a congregation of about 200 people. And so uncle so-and-so was an elder, grandpa was an elder, and on and on it went. So whatever they wanted, they would get because of the uh, family members that were in the eldership. Now, that's not to be. Even your family members, when these situations come up in the church, ought to be treated just like everyone else. I believe my personal opinion, one reason we don't have a lot of trouble here is because we're not all of the same biological families. We are one family, God's family. And so we love each other and we work through whatever issues we may have. We can't run to Paul Paul and say, Paul Paul, you need to take care of this in the church, or, you know, my dad's an elder. It's, it's not like that here. So uh, the elders are to be impartial and to treat everyone fairly. In Isaiah 26, verse 7, the Bible says, The way of the just is uprightness. And so a bishop is to be a man that is, he's just, he's fair, he's not impartial. He treats everyone the same, fairly, uh, when dealing with the matters that he must deal with, being an, a bishop. And then a bishop must be holy. He must be a holy man. Uh, Lipscomb said, well, actually, Winton says, and then Lipscomb quotes, Winton quotes Lipscomb, 
But he says, to be holy is to be pious and devout, and is the opposite of that which is unrighteous or defiled. Pretty simple. And then he quotes Brother Lipscomb, and he says, the three words, sober, just, holy, present the three sides of human duty. Duty to oneself, duty to men, and duty to God. In all, in all these, the man of God is to show himself a true man. And Thayer says, in Thayer's Greek lexicon, the holy man is one who is undefiled by sin, free from wickedness, righteously observing every moral obligation, pure, holy, pious. And so he must be a just man, he must be a holy man, and then a bishop must be temperate. Lipscomb says, one who is temperate is one who maintains self-control, holding all his desires and appetites in restraint so moderate in their gratification. The bishop not only must be able to control his tongue, his eyes, and his hands, but must show a just and wise moderation. And so he is to uh, keep his desires in moderation. He's not to go overboard uh, in any of these areas, but he is to practice self-control, self-discipline. And that sometimes is easier said than done based on what the issue may be and what the desires are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, Paul said, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. And so if someone is preparing to run a race, he has to practice self-control. Uh, I notice with some of these prize fighters, you know, they have to make weight, one thing, before the fight. But way before that, they have to prepare themselves. They have to eat the right things. They have to, you know, they have to uh, exercise the right way. They have to work out the right way. And if they don't get all that just right, they're most likely going to be defeated because they've got to work at it. They've got to practice self-control. There's a lot of times they want to eat donuts, but they can't eat donuts, at least until the fight is over. And then they may not feel like eating donuts for a while, but they have to watch what they eat. They have to watch what they do. They have to watch where they go. Some of them go to certain places uh, where it's the uh, where it's different. Uh, the air's different. Some places where it's heavier and everything, more dense uh, for these purposes. So there's a lot into that. But as Paul points out, they do all that for a corruptible crown. They may get a belt, or they may get a trophy. I heard him interviewing uh, Tom Brady the other day about his eating habits and the way that he works out and all, and he's very strict with himself. And it shows because he's a winner. But you win the Super Bowl, you win the Super Bowl. That's a great accomplishment, but nothing like the one we're trying to obtain. And so, again, being an elder is being uh, in the highest office in the land, you must be temperate to be able to hold that position, to get that position. And so you have to have self-control. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, when Peter was talking about uh, elders, 
He says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And that's the difference. If you would do it for earthly things, why wouldn't you do it for heavenly? And so that crown that fadeth not away. Titus chapter 1 verse 9. Paul writes, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to convince, I mean to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. And so a bishop must hold fast the faithful word. This indeed is the faithful word. He is to hold it fast. He must know this book. He must know how to use the sword of the Spirit correctly. This two-edged sword. Kaufman says, The primary duty of elders, namely that of watching over and protecting the flock of God, requires that they be students of the Holy Scriptures, having a broad knowledge of what is and what is not sound doctrine. And so the man that's going to be the men that are going to be placed into an eldership must know this book. They must know sound doctrine, they must know the truth, and they must know false doctrine. And if they're wise, they will try to stay ahead of these new things that come from time to time. There's always something in the brotherhood. There's always some new something that's being de debated and, and uh, pushed. And so uh, they need to be aware of those things. And they need to be prepared if it comes in their area. Or they have opportunity to refute such. They need to be capable and able and willing to do so. In Vine's uh, Greek dictionary it says, Using sound doctrine... Elders are obligated to exhort and convince gain, gainsayers. The Greek term translated convince means A, to convict, confute, refute, usually with the suggestion of putting the convicted person to shame. Matthew 18, 15. Where more than telling the offender his fault is in view. It is used of convincing of convicting of sin. John 8:46 and John 16:8. Gainsayers in regard to the faith. Titus 1:9. So we find this also mentioned in Jude verse 3 where Jude wrote, "Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Some people say, well, I don't believe in arguing about the Bible or with the Bible. But that word uh, contend means to argue strongly, to defend, defend the truth. And so we have looked at about 24 qualifications. I think I've covered them all. Uh, hopefully I have. And so I pray, my prayer is, that our men will desire the office, that they will continue to remind themselves of the kind of man that God wants ruling over his family. And that they will choose to be that man or those men in the future. 
And hopefully here at Fairhope, we will have those that will step up to the plate and say either uh, they'll be qualified or else they will be working toward that end. That will be their goal. And that eventually, hopefully not too far in the future, we will have an eldership again and we will not be lacking in that area. But it's up to our men and it's up to their wives and their families. And so children, obey your dad and your mom. Submit to him. Make him proud. Make sure that you are not a hindrance in him being able to be an elder in the Lord's church someday. Wives, be sure that you submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And husbands, make sure that you love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Let's love one another. Let's be what God would have us to be. And if we'll do that in the future, we will have good, capable, qualified men to lead us from the position of an eldership. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, like we said time and time again, many of these qualifications would fit Christians. We are to follow and practice. Of course, we don't have to have children and we don't have to be married and things like that to be a Christian. But we do have to practice self-control and we do have to be just and holy in the things that were mentioned. And we can be. If God has never expected anything of man that man cannot produce. Just like when man, God told man not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, man didn't have to eat of that tree. And God knew he didn't have to, but man chose to do so. And so we choose to do right or we choose to do wrong. It's a choice. God grants us that choice. He hopes that we and, and wants us to choose him, to choose good, to be a lover of good things, and to do that which is right and just and pleasing. But he will allow us to do otherwise. If you've been doing otherwise, you can always change. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Son of God and you'll have that penitent heart, you realize that he died for you so you would not have to die lost and be in hell in eternity, then you will repent of your sins. Have a change of mind that produced a change of life, Luke 13, 3, Acts 17, 30, and 31. And then make the great confession that Peter made in, in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked the disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And of course they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, Elias, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus said to them, Whom do ye say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus was very pleased with that confession that was made. And you must make that same confession. Everyone that becomes a Christian must make the same confession that is, not that you're a sinner. God already knows that and everyone else. The confession is that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then allow someone to immerse you, not sprinkle water on you, not pour water on you, but to immerse you, to submerge you beneath the water, immerse you in that water uh, so that you can have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. That only takes place when one humbly submits to the command to be baptized as Jesus commanded in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized, or he that believeth and is immersed, is um, a more accurate translation, instead of a transliteration, uh, will be saved. You can't be saved without it. So if you're here and you need to be baptized, won't you do that tonight? If you're here and you haven't practiced self-control, or perhaps you've been self-willed, 
uh, soon to anger or any of these things that we've mentioned and you brought shame or reproach upon the Lord's church, you need to come forward tonight and make that right. If you need to do so, won't you come as together we stand and sing.